a Bible or a touchpad or a cell phone or whatever you may be using to get the Scripture these days. And if you don't have any of those resources, it'll be on the screen in just a minute. We are in, a, in the winter and spring section of this year-long series of engaging with our culture. Uh, how do we uh, keep the message true, the gospel uh, pure, but also be careful to consider the folks around us and, and their circumstances and, and their particular situation? How do we engage with our culture effectively for the gospel? So we're going to look at some verses in Acts 16 to that end this morning. I remember the day I knew I wasn't going to be a major league first baseman. Anybody had that dream? I, you know, all little boys have dreams of, of greatness, whether it's being the president or being a pro athlete or a great musician of some kind. And uh, I remember when that dream was squashed, I was in fifth grade. I was playing for a team called the Myers Flyers. We were down on Marshall Road uh, having a regular game. And, and I was still at the age where they kind of moved you around position to position. You didn't you know, stay in any one spot. They, you know, kind of tested you out all over the place. I ended up finding myself in right field quite a bit. I'm not sure what that meant. But um, this was the day I was playing first base. And for about the fourth inning in a row, I forgot to take the baseball with me when I went out to first, you know, to throw the grounders to warm the guys up, right? So the pitcher's taking his warm-up pitches, and you throw it to the third baseman. He throws it back to shorts. And I, it was like literally every inning I forgot to take the ball. So normally, the, the, you know, the coach from the dugout would yell, and he'd throw me the ball, and I'd take it. Sorry, well, he got so frustrated, he just bypassed me and threw it to the third baseman on the ground, right? So I'm standing on first base, and I am talking to the other team's first base coach. We're having a conversation this way, and the third baseman's over there who scoops up the ball and fires it to first base and hits me right on the side of the head. Fortunately, I have a hard noggin, so it was okay. But uh, that was the day I kind of figured I wasn't going to be a major league first baseman. I also remember when I was even younger than that, it must have been maybe third grade. I was playing hockey, and I was a goalie, and it was at the Kirkwood rink when it was outdoor, and it was really cold, and we were playing a game, and the puck was down at the other end, and they started coming this way, and I was kind of halfway paying attention, and my, all of a sudden, I heard my dad over here yelling, Tom, Tom, look out, and so I look at my dad as the puck goes through my skates and into our goal from about half ice. There's something about losing your focus that can be very detrimental. <laughs> There's something that's true about keeping your eye on the ball. Now, whether it's in a sporting activity or whether it's in your business, whether it's in your spiritual life. Mike talked about, you know, uh, praying with our spouses. And I remember when Cindy and I first started that, how awkward it felt. But, but now that we've kind of kept our eye on that ball, we're pretty comfortable praying together after 31 years of marriage. But there's something about focus that is absolutely crucial in all walks of life. This morning, we're going to talk about focus in just one particular realm of the Christian faith. There are several places where we should focus. We should focus on knowing the Word of God. We should focus on our prayer lives. There, there are all kinds of ways that we should focus. But this morning, we're going to be talking about what we're talking about all semester, which is focus on what it means to share the message of Jesus with others. Let me give you the sentence in just a, a sermon or two this morning. God calls and equips Jesus' disciples to be his witnesses. We saw that several weeks ago, a couple months ago, in Acts chapter 1, where Jesus says, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. So wait in Jerusalem until I equip you with the Holy Spirit to that end. So we understand very simply and very plainly that that is part of our relationship with Jesus. If you're here this morning and you're a disciple of Christ, Part of the focus in your life and in my life should be, where am I being a witness for Christ? 
So when God arranges these encounters, these conversations, could be in my family, could be in my office, could be you know, in between classes at my middle school or my high school, wherever it is, my next door neighbor, as God arranges these encounters, our responsibility is to keep the eye on the ball. Our responsibility is to be prepared. How do we talk to and respond to those who may have questions about faith in Christ? We're going to look at Acts chapter 16 this morning because Paul and his companions have three different encounters within just a portion of this passage of Scripture with folks that don't know Christ. And we're going to look at each one of those three encounters, and we're going to try to discern how does Paul engage, uh, you know, kind of what's his motif, how's he going about things, what was the outcome, and how do we apply uh, these principles to our life. So, We're not going to read the whole passage through because it's pretty lengthy. We're going to take it in bite-sized pieces. But before we jump into the first passage, let's pray together. Father, being a a fifth-grade first baseman that doesn't quite get it, uh, that's a learning experience, and that's probably good for me. But Lord, when we we don't focus and we we don't keep our eye on the ball and the bigger things of life, uh, there can be terrible consequences. And Father, when we do, when we're focused on your using us as your witnesses for Jesus, uh, the results can be uh, profound. Not necessarily that, that everybody we ever talk to comes to Christ, but it's one of the ways you use us to deepen our faith, to grow our trust in you, and to, to lead people to salvation. So, Father, we pray that as we look at this passage this morning that you would teach us, that you would instruct us. Lord, what I have to say is really not very important at all. We don't need the words of man. Uh, we long for and we need desperately the word of God, the truth of God. So that for which we pray, uh, forgive me for my sin. Don't let me stand in the way of what you want us to learn and to know this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The first uh, encounter that Paul has that we're going to look at starting in verse 11 of, uh, of chapter 16 is what I'm going to call uh, an, an engagement or an encounter with a seeker, and I'll explain that term in just a minute. But chapter 16, uh, verses 11 through 15, Luke writes, So set, sailing, setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city in the district of Macedonia in a Roman colony. I spent a good portion of yesterday reciting the pronunciation of those words. There's four of them right in a row that are not all that simple. We remained in this city for some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside to the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her, to, excuse me, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us saying, "If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay." And she prevailed upon us. Lydia and those around her are folks who are uh, asking the right spiritual questions. They are considering what it means to have a relationship with God. Up until this point, Lydia, as far as we know, had never heard the name Jesus. She never had the entire gospel kind of spelled out for her in very specific forms, as I'm sure that that Paul did on that particular day. But there was something stirring in her heart. She had questions for which she uh, looked to God 
for answers. So you have a seeker in the sense that there, there, there's some unanswered questions, there's some soul searching that's going on, there's some form of worship that's taking place. Now, for, for my brothers and sisters who are, who are distinctly Reformed in theology, don't hear me saying that apart from the Holy Spirit, a person comes to Christ. It is God's work first. I understand that. But God's work does not always happen in an instant. God's work can take place over decades. God's work can take place over many, many years before a moment of conversion. And so in that sense, Lydia was seeking a relationship with Christ. But what's more important here is not that Lydia was kind of in the frame of mind to be a friendly hearer, so to speak, but that Paul and his companions were actually looking for the opportunity to talk to somebody about Jesus. They had arrived in this city, and they had not just said, you know, we're going to hang out in downtown Philippi, and, and maybe our reputation will follow us, and maybe somebody will recognize us, and maybe, just maybe, somebody might ask us about Jesus. Boy, we really hope that happens. No. When Paul and Silas and, and company got to town, they, maybe they asked some questions of the local folks, but ultimately they talked among themselves and said, where can we go where people are going to be having spiritual conversations? Let us intentionally try to seek that out. So they end up at this place of prayer, as Luke describes it, on the outside of town by a river, which is no surprise. It's probably a little bit breezy there, probably a little bit nicer to have a conversation, maybe under the shade of the trees that grow on the river bank. But for whatever reason, that's where they find folks. Where are people today having spiritual conversations? Where are people in your sphere of influence and my sphere of influence having these kinds of spiritual conversations. I would say they take place in all kinds of locations. We might be thinking, well, this would be a place where that kind of conversation could happen, would occur, and I'm certain that it does. And if you're here today as a visitor and you're kind of going, you know, I'm not sure about God, but I, I want to know a little bit more about him. I've kind of, maybe that stirring that you're talking about, that's kind of happening in my heart. Absolutely. It's going to happen in a setting like this all the time, but doesn't it happen in, you know, hallways at your school? Uh, don't those kind of conversations happen in your workplace? Don't those kind of conversations happen around your dinner table? One of those conversations happened in a, in a bar uh, in a restaurant in Northern California last Wednesday night because I was in the middle of that conversation. I was in California meeting with a bunch of church planters, strategizing about church planting around the country. And a buddy of mine got to the, and I got to the restaurant about a half an hour instead of ahead of everybody else. So, you know, it's kind of those areas where you can stand by the door, you can go in there and sit down. So we went and sat down. We're kind of at the L shape of the bar, and after a couple minutes, we met the, the woman that was furthest away, was about four seats over, was from Boston. And we began to talk to her. And then the woman next to her was a gal that was in uh, town on business from Denver. And then the guy sitting immediately to my left was a guy named Bart, who was a local guy who was really not in a very good mood. And he, he was pretty big man, and he was pretty gruff, and he just kind of wasn't happy about anything. And then came the dreaded moment. What do you do for a living? <laughs> so, well, we're here with a group of guys that are looking for ways to, uh, to engage people uh, for faith in Christ, and we, we try to help network planting churches. And Bart looked up and turned to me and had a, pretty much of a scowl on his face, and he said, so you're, you're one of those guys that tries to save people, huh? And I said, well, Bart, no, I'm not. Uh, Jesus is the guy that saves. I just come and share with them the, the information. And so I can't save you, Bart, but, uh, but if you want to know how Jesus can, I'd be happy to talk to you about that. And we had then a relatively pleasant conversation for the next few minutes. I'm not sure if he was glad that we went out to our table and sat down and had dinner or not. 
But point being, these conversations happen everywhere. Are we looking for them is the question. Are we actually the one who is seeking the opportunity to share the gospel with others? Paul is faithful to seek out folks with whom he can speak. God is then faithful to work in the heart of Lydia and eventually in all the people in her household to the point where they put their faith in Christ and are baptized. And now Paul has a growing audience in Philippi because Lydia says, I want this to be your base of operations. Hang around with us for a while. And she persuades them to stay. The first encounter Paul has, if we could stop there, we'd be go, sign me up. <laughs> what, a, what a wonderful, delightful conversation. But not every person is a seeker. The second individual and group that Paul encounters are actually folks that have no interest in the gospel. In fact, they're hostile to the gospel because at times God brings us into contact with dangerous people. Look at verses 16 to 18. As we were going to the place of prayer, so now we're going back from Lydia's house, we're, we're going back and forth, there was a slave girl we're met by who had a spirit of divination, an evil spirit in other words, and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us crying out, these men are servants of the most high God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out of her that very hour. Now, I don't know why Paul, why Paul let this go on for some amount of time. Clearly, it went on for, you know, some amount of days, a week, two weeks, three weeks. But for whatever reason, in Paul's spirit, uh, it was not the right time. So you can kind of hear her yelling and screaming. And Paul's like, come on, let's just keep walking. Don't worry about it. Until eventually the spirit of God kind of, moved Paul to say enough is enough. What we need to see here is that Paul is neither looking for a fight, but nor is he avoiding confrontation. I asked this in the first service. I'll ask in this service. I got three hands raised in the first service. How many people in this room love confrontation? Just love it. Hannah, you and me, sister, looks like we're the only, we're the only two. We live for, I, I cracked up yesterday that I, I read in the news that the Mexican baseball team got in a fight with a Canadian baseball team. And all those Canadian players play hockey 10 months out of the year. Are you kidding me? Who, who wants to fight with those guys? But there are very few people that like confrontation. Most of us would rather have a root canal without a shot of Novocaine than face confrontation. Some of us have contented ourselves to live with abusive people because more often than not, they're, they're nice. And we just decide that we're going to kind of put up with it. Maybe we have a boss who's treating us inappropriately, and we're like, you know what, I'm just not going to rock the boat. Maybe we have a family member that, 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 that's treating someone poorly, and we, and we don't want to engage in that conversation because we tried once or twice, and it just went really badly. Most of us absolutely hate confrontation. Paul's not looking for it, but he doesn't back down when it arrives. And Paul doesn't stop to think, now, where is this going to take me? What's going to happen to me? He simply says, enough is enough. And he turns and he speaks to the Spirit and says, you're out of here. You're gone. Paul meets the challenge with truth, which means two things. The first is that he recognizes the source. What you don't read in this passage is that right outside of Philippi, there was a little temple to the god Apollo. And Apollo is known in, in mythology to have close ties to uh, the python, the snake, the python, which you know, slowly constricts and kills its victims. And when 
uh, Luke uses this word, a spirit of divination. If you go back to the Greek, it's actually part of that root word is for the word python. And so Paul understands that this is an evil spirit. This is not a woman who's, who's imbalanced chemically. This is not a woman who has some mental uh, issue that is explained by physical problems, which many of them can. Rather, this is someone who's indwelled by an evil spirit for the purpose of keeping people away from the truth of the gospel. And so Paul rightly confronts the source. He recognizes it as a demonic spirit who somehow can put this woman in a trance that allows her to, to share things that, that people will pay to hear in order to make money for her owners. And so Paul calls out this source. He understands that when she uses the term most high God, she's not using it as a term of uh, worship, not using it as a term of uh, of, of adoration, but rather she is spitting the words out in hatred because that's really who Satan wants to be. He wants to be the Lord God Most High. He wants to be the one who owns all things. And if you go to Isaiah chapter 14 in the Old Testament, you see very clearly God calling out Satan. And God's saying to him, you're, you're, the, you're the morning star. You're the beautiful one. You're the glorious one. But you've been cast down. Why? Because you said in your heart, I will ascend to the place of the Most High God. And so this woman is uh, in a dangerous place, spiritually speaking. And Paul sees it. He understands the source. But he also offers the rebuke under the authority of the Most High God. He says, in the name of Jesus Christ, Come out of her. Paul doesn't say, hey guys, watch this. Watch my power. Watch my authority. But rather he engages in a dangerous situation by calling on the most high God to confront this woman. I remember back in the 80s I was on a mission trip to, to Haiti and it was mostly a medical trip. But we were going to a couple different villages and, and, and doing some teaching and some preaching and the doctors were working. We came to a village that still had a witch doctor. And the, and the pastor, the Haitian pastor said, I've had this village circled for a long time because I, I'm going to get that guy out of here. And we pulled up, and I don't know what I expected to see, but a man came out of the buildings, and he was actually dressed fairly normal, kind of khakis and a, and a, and a shirt, but his face was painted weird colors, and he was screaming at the top of his lungs, just yelling at us. And I looked at the interpreter, I'm like, who is, uh, you know, I kind of thought maybe it was a witch doctor. What's he saying? And he's saying, that's the witch doctor, and he's saying that if you don't leave immediately, this is my village, you'll be dead by nightfall. And then I looked out of the corner of my eye, because I'm like, okay, well, you know, there's lots of villages. <laughs> Get back in the, in the van, there's a lot of good faith. Um, I watched the pastor walking slowly towards him, and he was looking him directly in the eye, and he was speaking pretty loudly but, but calmly, a very, you know, just level voice. But he was saying the same thing over and over again. So I looked at the interpreter. I said, what is, what's our guy saying? You know, what, what's happening here? He said, he's saying, I am a messenger of Jesus, and if you don't leave, you are going to have to deal with Jesus. Jesus is protecting me. He's protecting this village, and you won't be here anymore. So he spent the whole day caring for people. He stood off at, at a distance, and he was subdued the rest of the day. We left. We spent the night in the hotel. I had a great mousetrap in my hotel that actually caught a cockroach about that long in the middle of the night. Um, and the next morning, we went back, and the witch doctor was gone. Never came back. And as far as I know to this day, that church is still thriving in that city. Why? Because that pastor understood his authority was not his, but it was in the lordship of Jesus. You see, friends, we're not called to avoid the dangerous. We're not called to look out for our own safety first. We're called to confront with grace and with mercy and compassion, but we're called to take a stand for the truth of the gospel of Jesus. And Paul does that in this moment, and he's also willing to pay even a greater price. Look at verses 19 through 24. 
But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them into the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept and to practice. Notice not a whole lot of information there about how they're not making money anymore. Okay? These are clearly enemies of Paul and Silas. They want to do them in. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Paul and Silas, by God's grace, are willing to pay the price. We sang this morning, you're calling me to the cross, and it's a beautiful, melodious song. And, 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 it, and it smacks of a sense of, of peace and comfort and joy. But God's calling us to the battle of the cross. God's calling us to the danger of the cross. God's calling us to the, our loyalty to, to the Lord Jesus and his cross and his grace and his salvation. And there are times when very, very dangerous people will be upset with that message. And yet Paul doesn't change the message. He doesn't say, you know, Silas doesn't say, hey, before you beat us, tell you what, if we just don't talk about Jesus anymore, we'll just head out of town, you know, we're all good, right? They don't shirk. They don't step back. Nor do we hear Paul or any of his companions accusing God of abandonment. Rather, they're trusting God in the midst of these very, very difficult circumstances. They're, they understand that even dangerous people need the gospel. I want to take you for just a moment to the Psalms. And in Psalm 131, David writes, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. Now, I've read the first verse a lot more than I've read the second verse, I have to be honest with you. And I came back to this verse, and I was thinking about it because things too high for me. I'm like, well, how did God create the whole universe? You know, how did all that work? How do the stars, you know, stay where they are? How, how does gravity, you know, and you start thinking about engineering feats and, and all kinds of, you know, things that you can't, you know, those the things that doctors can do, you know, that I could never figure out. I don't think that's where David's going with this because of the second verse, I think is, is very important to see the context of the first verse. David is saying, I'm calm. I'm at peace when I'm near you. A weaned child is not a child that's still breastfeeding, right? A weaned child is one that just lays in mama's arms. Why? Because that's where they feel safe. They just want to be with mama. And I think the high and lofty things that David was thinking about, was recalling perhaps, was like a really big giant named Goliath who wanted to kill him. Was like a boss named Saul who one minute loved him and embraced him and called him son, and then the next minute tried to kill him with a javelin so that David had to run away and live in the wilderness, not knowing how he was going to get by. I think the things that he couldn't figure out that were too lofty were why his son Absalom would rebel against him. And in all those things where, Saul, where David didn't have an answer, he still had peace and comfort. Why? Because his focus wasn't on the danger and how to avoid it, but rather his focus was on God's care for him. I was talking to, uh, I actually sat in a conversation in between services, uh, and I was listening to three people talk, and one of the people was talking about how difficult their work environment was right now. And part of the difficulty was uh, because of, of their faith and, and how hard it is to, uh, to be in that environment. And I'm like, you know, 
Just tell me who they are. I'll go get them. Is somebody coming after one of the people in my church? You know, give me their name and phone number. You know, and I wasn't loving dangerous people very well. <laughs> and fortunately, God caught me up short there in that moment. And I said, you know, gosh, I hate to say it, but, you know, maybe God has you around dangerous people because he wants to do something, you know, pretty amazing in your life and in theirs. And she goes, yeah, that's what I'm thinking too. So they, they were praying and I joined them in prayer. God isn't removing us from the place of danger. He may be drawing us into it for his glory for growing our own faith in Him, and for seeing others come to Christ. So you have seekers, you're like, yeah, bring the seekers, love them. The dangerous, they're a little scary. But then there's, there's one other contact here, and it's with what I call the genuinely disinterested. Look at, at verse 25. So we're in prison about midnight. Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. There's a, there's a joy in their life. They're not questioning God. They're not grumbling because they're in jail. I would be really upset. I'd be, why did we come to Philippi in the first place? These people are low account. Let's get out of here as soon as we can. We got beat up, and, you know, why is Jesus putting us through this? Not these guys. They're praying, and they're singing, and the prisoners are listening. And I want everyone to, to understand that your joy and my joy in the midst of difficult circumstances speaks louder than probably any sermon ever will. Do not underestimate the impact of a godly attitude on those around you because these other prisoners are going to come into play in just a minute. But there's a joyfulness in the, in the hearts of, of Paul and Silas, and that joy translates into a, a significant character. Look at verses 26 through 28. Suddenly at about midnight, there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were open and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke up and saw the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, do not harm yourself for we are all here. You see, when your joy is in Christ, when your rest is in him, you can actually do really, really stupid things. <laughs> like care about your jailer more than yourself. The doors are open, the chains have fallen off. Hey, that happened to Peter one time in Jerusalem, and he got out of prison. Let's all leave. And perhaps Paul either looks down the hallway and sees the jailer or is in tune enough to know what will happen, that it's not like in our day and age when somebody escapes, you just go find them and bring them back. In Paul's day and age, the jailer was responsible, a life for a life. And the jailer's getting ready to fall on a sword because he knows no sane person stays in a prison when they don't have to. I've lost him. I don't want to go through the indignity of dying in the public square, but my life is over. I'm falling on my sword. And Paul's joy led to a depth of character that allowed him to say to the jailer, you're safe. It's okay. Nobody's gone anywhere. We're all here. And you can almost see Paul and Silas stand at the doorway and all the other prisoners wanting to run by him. And Paul's saying, sit down, boys. The, the worship service isn't over. We're going to sing and pray some more. You guys aren't going anywhere because that guy's life is more important than mine. I know where I'm going. He doesn't. And there, there's a total shift in thinking about someone who has absolutely no interest in the gospel and maybe isn't aggressively persecuting Paul, but certainly isn't helping him any, that comes from joy in Christ. And that character stirs deep questions in the heart of the jailer. Look at verse 29 and 30. The jailer called for lights and rushed in and trembling with fear fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and he said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Let me put that in a little different vernacular. 
I don't know who you guys are. I'm not sure what this is all about, but I would never put my life on the line for a total stranger, and you just did. There must be something in your life that is lacking in mine. You see how God is orchestrating this encounter? You see how God is, is, is using his servants to change this man's heart? So that his deepest longing is now not for his own life, it's not for his own reputation, but it is for his soul. And God uses a lack of a prison break <laughs> to show this man who is genuinely disinterested in the things of faith the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Paul and Silas living out the truth leads to them sharing the truth. The last set of verses we'll read this morning, 31 through 34. And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus, you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who were in his house. And he took them that same hour at night and washed their wounds. He was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up in his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with the entire household that he had believed in God. I don't know where your encounters will come this week, and I don't know where my encounters will come this week, or as Mike was talking earlier in his elder report, maybe in the, in the next year, but I know that God will bring them our way. And the question really isn't this morning, is the person just, you know, genuinely disinterested, or are they dangerous, or, or are they, could, we, could it be a friendly conversation, and I want to kind of try to find the friendly conversations. That's not the issue. The issue is keeping our focus on Christ. The issue isn't even keeping our focus on the fact that we're witnesses for him. Because, you see, I think that even falls short. I don't think knowing you have a responsibility to witness to people motivates you one whit. I don't think it motivates me. To carry around the burden of time of you don't do this, God's not going to be happy with you, A, isn't in the Bible, and B, puts a burden on me that I can never carry. I don't think Paul looked at the jailer first. I think Paul remembered the cross first. And I think he remembered it when he was at the river. And I think he remembered it when he was in the marketplace. And I know he remembered it when he was in the prison and decided that his life might be forfeit. But if he got a chance to bring somebody else to Jesus, it was well worth it. You see, keeping your eye on the ball is not just about the opportunity to witness, although I think that is crucial. We need to be aware of what's going on around us and seeing when God brings even, you know, Bert at the, at the bar that night to talk a little bit about the Lord. We need to be sensitive and looking for those things. But it only happens, successful witness, when we remember what Jesus has done for us, when we remember his grace and his mercy. And the one who would not look at his own life is more precious than our own. May that truth allow us to keep our eye on the ball as we share the gospel with others. Let's pray. Father, you're the one that calls us. You are the one who equips us, if we are your disciples, to be prepared to, uh, to, to give witness, to bear witness. Lord, I pray for, for those that are here this morning that may just be seeking and wondering and questioning. Father, I pray that they would see not the, the strength and conviction of Paul uh, or, or the, uh, the stick-to-itiveness, but rather that they would see what's behind that, that there is a, a Savior who gave his life as a ransom for many. And Father, as you call us to witness, you will bring people across our paths that are very, very friendly and very kind, and you'll bring people across our paths that really 
didn't even know they were interested in these conversations, and there'll be people that really uh, want to have nothing to do with us. They may even be dangerous to our, uh, to our well-being. But Lord, you're the one that arranges. You're the ones that sets the meetings. May our focus be on the Lord Jesus and the meeting to which he was appointed at the cross and how he gave himself for us. May we in turn give ourselves to him that he would use us to bring others into his family. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.